Good evening. Good evening from Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm on the road again uh, this weekend and through this week. Uh, I'm glad that a couple of you could be here with me. I hope uh, you were glad for a second chance to uh, to see this class live. I'm glad to have you guys here. I'd have to re-record it anyway because basically what happened was my audio got messed up. Um, Believe it or not, the recording that I made, I, I, it's not that I forgot to make the recording, but the recording that I made was recording two solid hours of like massive audio feedback. It was just the most horrifying audio recording I think I've ever made. Um, and, and anyway, I'm pretty sure I know how it got messed up, but it got messed up and it was pretty bad. So it was just totally unusable. And even the backup recording we had had a separate mistake. So we had like the perfect storm of audio issues on Wednesday night. So although it was a really fun class, uh, we, you know, we didn't, we couldn't use the recording at all. So I, I mean, even if none of you guys were here, I would have to just do this to myself. But it's so much more fun uh, to have uh, to have you wonderful people here with me uh, to uh uh, to, to go over stuff with me. So um, tonight we are going to, to redo the class in which we, uh, we talk about the first two Dracula films. Now, if you caught, um, I tweeted this out the other day because I, I, I kind of had, had some uh, second thoughts. I couldn't bear at the end of the day uh, the idea of not talking about Nosferatu as well because, I mean, Nosferatu is pretty cool, right? So um, in the end, I decided we really should... Um, we really should talk about Nosferatu too. So I'm going to do a little bit of summary of Nosferatu for those of you who didn't get a chance to see it. It's available. Um, uh, it's available online. Uh, you, you can see the whole uh, the whole movie on, on YouTube, actually. It's in the public domain. Um, Nosferatu was made in 1922. It's a German uh, silent film, impressionist film. And uh, basically, the, it, was, it was done... It was, it was well pirated essentially i mean it was done completely without permission of the bram stoker estate they just decided they wanted to do this like wholly unauthorized uh film version they were actually taken to court by the bram stoker estate uh, stoker himself i believe was dead uh by then but his estate took them to took them to court uh they won their court case and the court actually ordered every copy of the film destroyed uh which uh, most of the copies apparently were destroyed but obviously not all of them uh and it was it ended up getting re-released in America a few years later, I think in 27 maybe, uh, and was and was quite popular in America. Um, so anyway, that's sort of the the history of Nosferatu. Um, the, in the original version, all of the names, because it was unauthorized, all of the names were completely changed. So um, I think the I think Dracula was called Count Ordog. Um, uh, from the book, right? Remember the you know those uh, words for for Satan. I wasn't. It was not the, the 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 word that the peasants were using for Satan that Jonathan Harker overheard in the in the carriage. Um, so anyway, all of the names were changed. Um, the version that were that you know the, the the version that we have now has the names kind of changed back uh, to the regular uh, uh, Brams. Oh, well, almost all changed back to the regular Bram Stoker versions with a few strange exceptions. Um, well, okay, one primary strange ex uh, uh, um, exception. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom Hillman points out that it was like uh, the ace paperback version of The Lord of the Rings. It had a really big impact on making the original popular. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, 
So anyway, yeah. So um, by the way, can I just ask, is, is my audio coming through okay? I'm using a, a brand new microphone tonight. So I wanted to just check and make sure you guys were hearing me okay and you're hearing me loud, uh, loudly enough. Okay, good. Good. Thanks. Glad to hear that my audio is, uh, my audio is good. Okay. So, uh, so let's, let's, oh, so as I was talking about the cast, talking about the characters and the changes in the names, um, let's, um, uh, you know, I, before we start talking about Nosferatu and the story as they have altered it, I, uh, I have to admit, I know there are many people who really love Nosferatu. I mean, who really just like revere this film. It's one of the most famous and sort of highly, most highly respected films, you know, of the early 20th century. It's, you know, this is this landmark of, you know, the, 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 the science film genre. And I, and I totally respect all that stuff, like especially... Uh, especially in the abstract. Um, but at the same time, I can't help personally but find this movie in large part kind of a laugh riot. I mean, it's like, if you can get yourself in the right frame of mind, I find it really scary. But mostly, I just find it hilarious. Um, and, I, I, and, I, and I know that that probably shows... Um, it show, probably shows what a, what a, 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 a you know... Uh, plebeian mind I have but I'm sorry there it is but I mean like I ask you is not this objectively funny right I mean this is awesome who's driving the carriage it's Robin Hood the undead Robin Hood I love it when he strikes the pose Oh, that way. I mean, that hat, right? Of all the disguises he could have adopted, uh, that he put on this big whopping <laughs> Robin Hood hat. I mean, I just, I tweeted this, uh, I tw- tweeted a still um, of, uh, of, of this uh, uh, out earlier this week. He was like, you know, I suck the blood from the rich to give transfusions to the poor. It's, it's, I don't know. There's so much of this film I find very, uh, very visually amusing. Um, Tom Hillman thinks that everybody looks like Heath Ledger play, playing the Joker. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Uh, but anyway, okay. Let's think, about, let's think about the story and the kind of adaptation choices that they make. Now, both times, uh, both films that we're going to be looking at tonight, what I really want to focus on primarily are the sort of the big choices that they make, the big adaptation choices. Um, you know, what kind of decisions did they make? I mean, obviously, there's so much compression that has to go into this, right? And a lot of the things, are, you know, and I'm not too worried about about that kind of thing, right? I mean, like, for instance, let's look at, um, let's think about the cast, right? Of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the characters as they, as they put them in, in Nosferatu. There's some characters just cruelly cut out entirely, right? Like Arthur and Quincy. Neither, you know, neither of them are going to make an appearance in either one of these films, right? It's a, it's a, it's a common choice. Even the, the strange sort of decision that they make about Renfield, right? Um, to, uh, uh, to, to, and I, Veronica finds the cutting out of Quincy Morris unforgivable. I told her, I, I'm with you. I hear that. But again, it's kind of understandable, right? I mean, it's a it's it's like an hour and ten minute film, right? I mean, there's a lot that you have to compress. Anyway, whatever. Like it's, I you know I'm not going to say I think it's awesome that they took out Quincy, but nevertheless, it's kind of understandable. Um, and even the thing with Renfield, right? How they make Renfield into Jonathan Harker's boss, that I thought was a really interesting choice, but not one that I find hugely impactful uh, as far as the story and its adaptation goes. I mean, you have to admit that Jonathan's 
boss in the book, Peter Hawkins, is not really like a well-developed character and not really a central part of the story. I mean, obviously it's important that he's there and then that, and then that he dies and leaves Jonathan and Mina rich. Those things are all good things and important things, but um, but it's not. Um, it's still not. You know, he's he's not. You can lose his character from the story and not miss that much, right? Um, so the way that it's, I think, a really clever way to combine two different characters. They needed somebody to send Jonathan Harker off to Transylvania, right? And they needed to introduce Renfield. Uh, now, I will say, to me, a much stranger question is sort of Renfield. I don't get Renfield. I don't get Renfield at all in this movie. Like, what exactly they're doing with Renfield? In particular, the scenes when. Uh, the scenes at the end when like the entire town is running around chasing Renfield and throwing things at him uh, I don't I don't get it I don't understand I don't even understand why they're all chasing him like what what's I I just that I just don't I, I, I don't understand I, I don't know what's going on there at all um, and, and I just I don't see the significance Renfield um, seems to be he goes crazy we don't know why he goes crazy. I mean, he's, people say he was always a little bit off, right? I mean, people were always uh, a little bit dubious about him. But um, uh, but then he just kind of goes off his head. And, um, and yeah, Erica says whatever happened at Castle of Dracula made him crazy. I mean, it's almost like that, right? But although we get and we're going to be looking at the sort of psychic connection between, uh, between not Mina, but Nina, I have no idea why her name, if that was just a mistake or what. Uh, but it's really annoying and is going to trip me up the whole time we're talking about this. Nina uh, is, you know, has this sort of psychic link to Jonathan, right? And, and, or maybe to Dracula, but anyway, at least to Jonathan. Um, and that obviously makes a certain amount of sense. Um, there's at least a kind of an emotional rationale behind that, and they're married and everything. But Renfield, like, what is it like? I, I don't know. I don't know. I said so. I find the role of Renfield and his uh, uh, his his purpose in the story uh, to be a little bit baffling, actually, um, especially since it doesn't it doesn't have any utility, right? That is to say, Renfield in the book, at least, I mean, he 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 had several jobs, right? As far as the jobs of the character in the book. On the one hand, you know, he showed his connection to Dracula really helped to show us a lot. It's through Renfield that we learn a lot about vampires and what they are, right? Um, uh, you know, the, the, the zoophagy, the zoophagy of, of, uh, of Renfield is not only sort of a, a foil for Dracula's vampirism, but it's kind of like a, I don't know, I mean, it's like a tutorial version. I mean, if we didn't have Renfield consuming lives and trying to extend his own life, we wouldn't have, the, there's a lot of sort of insight into, um, uh, into the, the, nature of of vampires and who they are and what they do what they do that we just wouldn't have um so you know okay um in the there's that that element in the film i don't see that element in the film i don't i don't feel like i learn anything we know that he's insane we know we 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 can tell that he's worshiping dracula he's calling him master right calling out to him but we don't really see much about renfield again we we don't we know whereas again in the book renfield is someone whose case we have, like, direct access to, right? Because we're seeing, you know, the doctor and the doctor's notes on his case. So we, 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 we hear from him personally. We hear Dr. Seward's analysis of him. We just kind of are watching, in the movie, we're just kind of watching Renfield be crazy and, uh, and calling out to Dracula and then escaping and running around for almost, uh, for very little, um, 
for very little sort of point. Um, but uh, anyway, it's 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 kind of and then and then he doesn't again he doesn't actually play a role that is he doesn't never encounter Dracula. We never see any meeting between him and Dracula. Does he ever encounter him? Does he help him in some way? Does he need to invite him in somewhere? You know, there's no there's no link at all between Renfield and you know and Dracula with Jonathan and Nina, any of that stuff. You know, once uh, um, once Renfield sends off Jonathan Harker, which he seems to do before he goes crazy, um, Renfield is now just like on his own independent parallel, you know, story parallel with the rest of the plot. Um, and 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 again, as far as I can see, more or less irrelevant to it. So, um, yeah, Joyce is wondering: isn't Renfield functioning as kind of the Greek chorus? Interesting, maybe. Maybe. Um, uh, I mean, does he provide the audience with other kinds of cues? Perhaps. Though, again, I would say if he does, some of those, some of those cues are extremely perplexing. But uh, anyway, let's, let's, let's... So, apart from Renfield and my general confusion about Renfield... Um, like I said, I don't, I don't find the other changes that they make... I mean, the other changes to the characters, right? Like... Uh, uh, there's no Lucy, right? There's just Westenra, who's their friend. Uh, you know, so, okay, you know, it, it, and he's just sort of there, right? He's only there to basically be the male supervisor of Nina while Jonathan is abroad, right? So, okay. Um, uh, the, uh, all right, that's fine. I get that. And again, I, I sort of missed the whole Lucy story, but I understand there's not time for that. That's, you know, if you want to focus on the, the Dracula and Nina story, then, you know, again, that's sort of, that's sort of defensible. But I want to think about, the, think about the, the, the really big changes that they do make, the really big choices that they make, because they push this story in some pretty remarkable ways. Of course, the center of the story, as we're cued from the very beginning is um, the plague, right? So here's this, you know, one of the text stills we get at the beginning. I have long sought the causes of that terrible epidemic and found it in its, as its, at its origin and its climax, the, in, the innocent figures of Jonathan Harker and his young wife, Nina. Okay, so notice the frame here. Um, one thing that is interesting is that the film is retaining this sort of first-person narrative framework, in a sense, right? Um, that is, we're getting a first-person narrative, I have long sought, right? Um, and it's, you know, the quotation marks sort of show that we're, we're reading something that, um, that, that somebody wrote down, except you notice the context is, is completely altered. Instead of um, reading people's private journals and notes and letters and memoranda and things like that, um, we're getting what seems to be like the historical musings of I don't even know whom, right? Some sort of detached figure, possibly some figure well in the future, because of course that's another thing that's done, is the f the framework, the time frame has moved way back. As I, re as I recall, the events of the story within the film are meant to have taken place in 1838. Um, so they push the, the events of the story back to a point which is almost a hundred years in the past of the people watching the film, right? Whereas you'll remember that the that we're not given an exact year in which the Dracula story takes place, but it certainly seems to be that 
uh, you know, the, the the book certainly seems to suggest that the story takes place at, you know, pretty close to the 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 contemporary time. You know, the the events of the story. Um, when you if you were reading the book in 1897, there's no real reason to think that the events of the story didn't happen. You know, like a year ago. You know, or five years ago, or something like that. So the film chooses to make it a historical time, and it chooses that sort of historian's framework as the way of framing the story. Okay, so what we are going to see, in a sense, this is how I read this slide, right? How I read this slide is um, what we are going to see is the, the 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 true history of that apparently famous event, right? There was a terrible epidemic. And um, I'm going to, you know, you're now going to learn the true story behind both how that epidemic started and how that epidemic ended or or climaxed, right? Uh, Okay. Well, that's a really fascinating choice. It's a whole bunch of different fascinating choices. Again, while we do have the first person uh, 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 writing frame, it's completely changing the register. This kind of a history of a historical register puts it on a totally different framework. Notice how it also kind of pushes back. Um, we're not, it, it seems pretty clear we're not going to get that same, the same interest that the book showed in, you know, sort of that, the, the conflict between the ancient world and the, and the present world, right? Um, because it's pushing back the story. It's not the modern world anymore. This is, a, this is, this is uh, telling a story of a world at least two generations before uh, the viewers of the film, right? So it's not like the modern world versus the old world. So that's one thing we can already tell. From this first slide, we can already tell that we're not going to get this, uh, you know, it was 19th century up-to-date with a vengeance kind of theme that we got from Jonathan Harker, especially, and others um, uh, in, uh, in, in, um, in the book. But, of course, the even bigger thing is the business about the epidemic, Right, and we'll have to we'll, we'll have to see. I want to I want I want to start off looking at that. Um, but but I think this is a this is a huge deal, right? And and there are a bunch of different ways in which we can think about this. One way, right, is that the book the book focuses on essentially a private tragedy. It's a private story, right? Of course, they're they're very aware. You know, the the vampire hunters in the book are very aware of the fact that. They are, you know, potentially sacrificing themselves for many others. You know that this could be, uh, you know, some kind of a very serious, um, uh, you know, <laughs> the vampire on the loose could be a very serious problem for the culture as a whole, right? You know, that is to say, they know that you know they could be saving the lives of of, of you know untold thousands of people. So they're aware of the fact that you know all of England is in danger if there were to be some kind of vampire epidemic breakout because of, uh, because of Dracula's coming and making new vampires and everything. But nevertheless, the, sto- the force of the story is not that, right? It's not a story about public tragedy and national disaster. It's a story about private tragedy. It's a, the story about Lucy. It's a story about Mina, right? And, and you know, and, and, and the men who love the both of them, right? Um, their story again. They're aware of the implications for others, but the but the it's not a story of national tragedy. This is explicitly a story. You know, there is this great uh, you know tragedy in the history of our country, right? And this is the true story behind how it happened. Again, a completely different frame. Um, it, it invites us to have a very different kind of emotional relationship with this whole thing, right? Okay. Um, let me, uh, 
Yeah, good, Sharon. You're right. It actually the 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 pushing back of the time frame does cut out all of the technology elements. And again, I we, we can sort of guess from here we're not going to have the same emphasis on um, on you know the difficulty of the modern world in believing certain things. Right? We can already tell it's kind of off the table by pushing it back. Um, uh, uh, in that in that way, um, Veronica is asking, was there actually a major epidemic in Germany? I don't know. Um, I don't even know that actually. Um, you know that explained the decision to set the movie at that time. That would be kind of cool, right? If there actually had been a major plague or something, and then and they were like, hey, you know, we can tie this into an actual historical event. I don't know. Um, you'd have to look that up. Um, Joyce has talked about the, the the tail end of the Great Flu pandemic. Yes, but that wasn't in eighteen in the eighteen thirty. The, the point is, um, so I mean, yes, yes, of course, the flu pandemic was around then, and so this idea of epidemic would doubtless resonate with people. Um, but Veronica was asking about the sort of the historical dating, like why why eighteen thirty eight, right? Why did they choose that? I don't know, um, uh, but it's an interesting question. You should do some research and see what you find. Um, but what I'm interested in is the other element is this epidemic thing. Right, um, and like yeah, you can say okay, like yes, they were they were they were interested in epidemics because of the flu pandemic, certainly yes, but that's a huge change, right? I mean, think about the implications for the story of that choice, and it's huge. Uh, look, here's here's the first scene I'm going to look at an attempt to take seriously. Um, this is on board the ship. This is on the Demeter. Right, and this is the captain of the ship investigating. You know, there, 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 there are rumors of something going on right on board, and so they get out one of his boxes, and here's the captain gonna gonna open it up. Oh, here we go. Push the button. Okay, here we are. What's in the box? We're getting out the crowbars. We're opening the box. It's full of dirt. And the mate. I think that's the mate. He's looking carefully. Maybe it's the captain. Dump out the box. What do we find in the box? Dirt. And rats! A whole horde of rats! Oh, that's gross! Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so, of course, one thing that we see from this right away is that apparently within the film, and this happens on a couple of occasions, uh, Dracula doesn't transform himself into a rat. He transforms himself into a swarm of rats. How does that work? I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, if uh, if you kill three or four of the rats, what happens to Dracula? Does it damage him? Does he sense that? I, I have no idea. No answers to any of these questions. I have the faintest idea. Um, but it is pretty clear that he... Uh, um, it is pretty clear that he does. Uh, uh, he he is able to do this. Um, in just a minute, the guy, this guy standing right here with the awesome, uh, uh, with the awesome, is he wearing gaiters? I'm not really sure. But anyway, the dude with the gaiters, or at least the fancy boots, is about to get bitten on the foot by one of the rats. He's going to start whacking the whole horde of them with a shovel. Um, you know, who knows what happens if he succeeds in killing one of them with a shovel? But um, but anyway, okay. So, but you see the emotional impact of this, right? Dracula taking the form of a horde of rats on board a ship coming into a foreign port from overseas, right? You see, you can, you can see the impact of this. Um, he's being associated with the plague, right? This is, it's like this ship is bearing the plague and we, 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 we associate, right? In the 1920s, we already would have associated the arrival of plague uh, from afar, we know that it that it is often borne by rats. Indeed, uh, that's going to be alluded to 
uh, in uh, in in our next clip here. Yeah, see, here's uh, the uh, the page from the ship's log that they find when they go to the Demeter. Right, panic on board. Three men dead already. Mate out of his mind. Rats in the hold. I fear the plague. See the segue there, right? Since there are rats in the hold, he fears the plague. Um, uh, it's because especially because all, all all the men are dying. Right, the men are dying. There are rats in the hold. Plague is breaking out. Right, the, sh- so the ship is bearing plague uh, into uh, Bremen in Germany. I believe, which is where this the movie is meant to take place. It's not in London, right? So this 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 of course the other major change. This is it's it's not related to London at all. It's Bremen uh, that they're going to, but that's okay. Ha, Sharon Hoff points out that 1838 was the year of Queen Victoria's coronation. Not sure what to do with that, Sharon. I mean, it's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, you don't get the impression that the film cares that much about English history, though. I'd wonder what was happening in Germany in 1838. I mean, of course, it's tempting to see it as a kind of political allegory, right? I mean, does that mean that, like, the arrival of Count Ordok is like Queen Victoria? Uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe. Um, Karita's asking why the note's in English. Uh, this is the English version uh, of the film that we're that we're seeing. I believe this is the version that was released in America um, later on. So that's why we're that's why we're getting it in English. Good question. Um, yeah, exactly, Karita. We're not saying that Queen Victoria is the plague. We're just saying, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could you could do that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I totally buy that. Um, but 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 again, so we see the implications here, and this is this is huge. I mean, in 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 my book, this is the biggest thing. I'm you know, the historical connections could be really cool, and you know, I'd be interested to see what you guys think about that. But to me, the even bigger thing, right? I'm not worried about the historical stuff. What I'm really interested in is the fact of the significance of that change, right? The shifting of the vampire from a supernatural threat to a natural threat. Right, we're no longer talking about, uh, you know, Satan and hell and demoniacs and all of the the intensely spiritual and biblical language of the book. Now it's just disease, right? Now it's it's a plague. Uh, the vampire is no longer like the the the, the overriding uh, sort of image, metaphor, simile, um, just association with the vampire is no longer. The devil is no longer Satan; it's the plague. It's a, it's an epidemic disease, right? And that is a huge, huge choice. He's um, he's like a um, a real a regular predator in some sense. I mean, when we see him when he gets to Bremen, what does he do? He just kills people, right? I mean, look what happens. So this is, a, I, I skipped a few bits. I've edited some bits out here. This is kind of a, this is a little montage here, but we see what happens when he arrives. Okay. Um, the people in the port of Bremen discover the ship's log, right? They find this reference to rats in the hold and the plague, and they're all like, see, there's the Ted captain just sort of sitting there. Oh my goodness. The plague is here. Stay in your houses. So they're all going to scatter. All right, plague? I don't want the plague. I'm out of here. Right? I love this guy here who's already starts covering his face. Then you see, there he goes. Yeah. Oh, dear. The plague. Right? And so now we go around, and we're, they quarantine the, the place, and now we've got this dude. 
who's uh, going along and drawing white crosses on people's doors to indicate the plague. You know, let's not sp- spread the plagues. We're going to quarantine these houses. Here, wait, hang on a second. First, I'm going to open the window and stick in my head. Is there any plague in this house? Because if there wasn't before, there certainly is now. I'll come back and put a white cross on your door later on. Oh, let's just put one over here. Pay attention to those white crosses. And then here come the coffins. So, yeah. Time to begin the little parade o coffins. It's just dead people. The vampire is here and people are dying. First, a couple people dying. Right? People coming down sick in these houses. And then later on... The major parade of coffins. This is Nina looking out the window at the long train of coffins coming down the way. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yes. Yes. The bring out your dead roads. Nina, what do you think about this? I mean, there's a lot of people dying out there. What? Are you, are you concerned? I bet you're concerned. Oh, I totally feel that way too, Nina. Um... So, you see how incredible this is? I mean, I find this absolutely incredible. Um, not only because this is no, so this is not just a, a, a change in the sort of the metaphorical economy of the story, right? That is not instead of doing the devil thing, we're going to do the plague thing. You know, we're going to use a different metaphor. It's just a different metaphor. Right? They've not only they've, they've not only sort of associated him with a natural disaster instead of a supernatural disaster, they have apparently like changed the nature of vampirism entirely. Pop quiz: How many vampires do we meet in Nosferatu? One exactly, Veronica. Right? He, there's no hint of making other vampires. And it's kind of ironic almost, right? The word epidemic, of course, is used. It's, it's, it's you know, the, the concept of epidemic is at the heart of the story. And yet, exactly, you know, in the original, vampirism was actually contagious, right? Um, they were concerned about an actual epidemic of that kind um, in the book. Now there's no question of that, right? There's no issue of, uh, of that kind of epidemic of vampirism actually spreading. Um, instead, we just have death happening. They're blaming it. They're calling it an epidemic. So you see, it's actually not a real epidemic at all, right? It's not that he's bringing the plague. He is a plague. He is the one going around and personally causing death. So it's actually, it's not an epidemic. It's not a plague. It's, it's a predator, right? Just hunting and killing lots of people. And the effect of being bitten by a vampire appears to be merely death. And there's no threat. Not only is there no threat to your soul, right? You know, the kind of question of your salvation or anything like that. But there's no... Um, uh, it's, it, it's... All it does is kill you. All it does is you. You know, think about even like the, the mind control and all those other things. Um... The vampire seems to be depicted as simply a predator. He feeds upon the blood of the young. He needs their blood in order to survive, right? He feeds on them and it kills them when he takes their blood, or at least apparently not in one bite because we know Jonathan is bitten on the first night that he's in Castle Dracula and he doesn't die. Um, So it doesn't take only one bite to kill them. It's not like he's poisonous or something like that. He just 
takes their blood and then they die and apparently they're all dying so he's just going around house to house throughout the town of bremen here and um uh and and he's uh, and he's just taking everybody out as a consequence of this shift from the supernatural to the merely natural, not only, again, not only in metaphor, but even in the very nature, apparently, of Dracula himself, um, we have the complete removal from the story of any kind of Christian element whatsoever, almost any element, right? We get, we've, we get no crucifixes at all in this story, right? Most notably, of course, the scene that's parallel to the moment where we first perceive the efficacy of the crucifix in the story, right? When Jonathan cuts himself shaving and Dracula, you know, comes lunging over and then accidentally touches the rosary that's holding the crucifix and jumps back, right? Um, Here's the parallel scene in the film. Here's Jonathan, his first dinner. Jonathan, don't cut toward... Look, look, knife safety, man. Don't cut towards yourself... I love, look at the contract. This is his real estate contract, like covered with these like cabalistic signs and strange symbols. <laughs> who writes who writes real estate contracts that look like that? And never trust anybody with a skeleton clock like that. That's obviously a bad sign. But anyway, so yeah, careful. What? what don't what, don't cut toward your own thumb, you moron. And there he is. Oh dear, he's like, oh oops, look, I've cut myself. Uh oh. Now. Does Dracula actually put his thumb in his mouth here? I'm never quite sure about that. Blood. I think he did. Yeah. Jonathan, it's a good thing that peasant lady put that crucifix around your neck to protect you, just like in the book, right? Oh, oh wait. That didn't happen. She gave you a book. She didn't give you a crucifix. Oh, dear. You've got no crucifix. What are you going to do? Um, just back away, Jonathan. Yeah. That's pretty much all you can do. Back away and look really freaked out. Keep backing away, dude. He's gonna carry on invading your personal space. Yeah, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Um, there's no Christian element at all. Erica says, that's Dracula? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, but you have to admit, Erica, that he has, right, right, he has, awesome eyebrows i mean would you just look at that dracula's eyebrows stick out past the brim of his hat right his eyebrows are as good as gandalf's eyebrows for crying out loud um it looks like he's not slept much lately i don't know what's up with that black eye business that he's got somebody punch him in the eye uh uh or maybe it's just you know because he's uh He's still in the fasting stage of his existence, uh, maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, exactly, Karita. Somewhere Lee Pace is jealous. Lee Pace wishes he had eyebrows like this. Um, okay, all right. Anyway, so the point is, Jonathan's helpless. He's got no crucifix, right? And there is never any crucifix in the film. In fact, those white crosses that were drawn on the doors, the plague sign on the doors is the only time we get any cross or any Christian iconography at all in this video and has nothing to do with repelling the vampire. Indeed, it's almost the reverse, right? It's the sign that the vampire has been there, right? Um, so uh, this is, the, the, the entire film is completely uninterested in that kind of, uh, um, in that in that symbolism in that entire story so again it's 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 at least it's very consistent with the total removal of the uh of the supernatural right um 
but of course, you remove the crucifixes, it creates problems for lots of people. Oh, wait, hang on. I added a bit at the beginning here because I just... It's one of my favorite scenes. Dracula on moving day. <laughs> I love him coming across standing in the boat with his, with his coffin box under his arm. Out of the great sea, to Middle Earth I am come. <laughs> I do I do kind of think that's probably what Isildur must have looked like with the stone of Erech under his arm right as he came up out of the sea. But see, although we talked about how he's not... is naturalized, right? He's made not supernatural. He can still do this. Boom! And he can still... He can still uh, he can still disappear through the cracks of doors, apparently carrying huge boxes, right? And he can make them disappear through the cracks of doors as well. So it's not that he's not given any kind of uh, um, any kind of of magical power, supernatural, or unnatural. Let me just say that unnatural abilities. He does. We we already talked how he can turn himself into rats and he can go through doors and stuff. He still has some of the some of the these characteristics of the vampire, and yet. Um, uh, not spiritualized at all, um, which means, of course, I'm afraid. We're checking on the Demeter here, which just kind of came in and it looked like everybody on it was dead. So we we, we better go investigate what happened here. And the, oh dear, yeah. So again, no crucifixes, right? So the captain of the Demeter is toast. If you don't have a crucifix to tie to your hands that you, you lash to the helm. Then is what happens to you. You end up lying there drained with holes in your neck, right? Um, because, I mean, hey, this is now he's just like a plague victim, right? Hang on. Can we bring on board the medical examiner? We got to do some justice here to the captain of the Denver. There he is. Oh, check it. Is he dead? Yep. Yeah. There. Yeah, he's dead. Okay. The medical examiner has concluded his analysis. Uh, uh, very good. Um, Okay. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, Sharon says in the chat room, you guys are, are comparing and contrasting uh, the eyebrows of, of, of Nosferatu with the eyebrows of the man with the thistle-down hair. Uh, I, I, that, I think, uh, you know, and, 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 and a similar kind of effect, right? Uh, y- you guys might be onto something there. I think that... Uh, I think that I think that totally works. Okay, so after that rigorous medical examination, we've ascertained the death of the captain because, of course, no crucifix, so we're good, right? Um, so, uh, so what do you do, right? How do you fight this? Notice that that's one thing that's completely been removed along with the spiritual element, right? We have no weapons against the vampire. How can he be opposed? What is if he is just a sort of a scientific phenomenon? I guess in some way. Okay, if he's just if he's like a plague, right? Do you just have to cure him? Are doctors going to be the heroes that end up driving him away? How does this? How does this end up working? Well, this is where the story takes a kind of unexpected turn in some ways, um, and uh, and it does do something sort of spiritual sort of supernatural anyway right but not religious so okay so this is the second night 
that Jonathan is at Council uh, Council Castle Dracula. Um, he has his first night when he wakes up and he's like, "I got these mosquito bites on my neck. I don't know what's up with that." Remember that? And he sends the letter back to back to Nina, saying, "I'm fine, except for the but bu- the bug bites, but I'm sure it's nothing, right?" And then. The second night, Dracula's coming up. My guess is to finish him off, right? I mean, we know that death comes as a consequence of the vampire's feeding. Um, So uh, Nina, meanwhile, is sleepwalking, right? We retain the sleepwalking thing. Whoa! Good catch there, uh, Westenra. Get the doctor who is totally not named Dr. Seward. This is Jonathan sleeping in his clothes, and I, this, I love this. I love the symbolism of this. That this is the this is the part of the film that I think really does work. That shadow. So here's him being overshadowed by the. So it's like the shadow of death closing in over Jonathan, right? Oh no! Nina is aware somehow, psychically linked with her husband across all the all the miles. Call out to your beloved Jonathan. Hear me. Oh, but apparently Jonathan is the only one who can hear her, right? As she sort of psychically reaches out to her husband, the shadow of death recedes, and the vampire stands up and he's like, What the heck was that? I could have sworn I heard something. And she's like, Yes, I am calling out to my husband, and I am interposing my love between you and him. And he's like, Fine. I'm going to stagger very slowly and solemnly from the room then. Look how the music dies. And I'm going to close the door behind me. And the door closes between Dracula and Jonathan. Meanwhile, Nina's like, whew, I have bushed. Yeah, my friend Jane Eyre warned me that that was really, really tiring, but boy, I didn't even expect. I really need some sack time. Interposing your love between your husband and a monster from hundreds of miles away really takes it out of you. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Tom Millman says there are moments the vampire looks like Kramer. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Um, uh, okay, so... Uh, uh, yeah, right? So the only... So this... Now, note, this is the only thing that we have seen that has any um, effect on the vampire. That Remember the peasants, uh, when they meet Jonathan Harker in the book, they have like any number of mechanisms, right, for protecting themselves against vampires. Remember, they're, they're giving him all, right? Here, have some branches of wild rose. Have some, you know, have some garlic. Have a crucifix, right? They're, 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 everybody knows there are certain things you can do, right? What do the peasants do in, uh, in this film? Avoid him, right? We just don't go to the Borgo Pass because it's the land of phantoms, right? And such that the coach that's taking him refuses to go, like drops him off, and he has to, and Jonathan has to proceed on foot, right? So all they can do is just avoid it, like the plague, right? So there seems to be no mechanism for sort of fighting the vampire, but now we have one, right? The one thing which has efficaciously driven away the vampire is the devoted love of Nina herself here. Um, and that's really interesting, the, the, the fighting of the shadow. And of course, 
we get this is the also the culmination of the story, right? Um, where Jonathan brings home that book, and in in that book is you know with Jonathan's relationship to the book, the you know, the like vampire for dummies book that he's given or finds or something uh, in the inn there, right? He doesn't get a crucifix. He gets the he gets the he gets the instructional manual uh, for vampires, and. Um, um, though even that really kind of reads like natural history, like let me tell you about this obscure species called the vampire and how they behave in their natural habitat. But within that book, he has. Uh, it is written as we see that um, the only way that a vampire can be killed is if a woman of pure heart um, gives herself to him and keeps him like in her room until after the cock crows and then he'll be destroyed, right? Um, so it has to be the self-sacrificial act of a woman of pure heart. Um, uh, yeah, Karita, if you don't have a Nina to love you, yeah, uh, well, you, you say sucks to be you. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean... Of course, ironic phrasing there, right? But, uh, but yeah, Sharon, it is like the stone trolls, right? The, the, when the when when the dawn comes, if he's caught out in the dawn, um, then uh, uh, then apparently he will uh, he will be he will be destroyed. Um, let's uh, let's look at the scene here. This is, of course, the culminating scene. Uh, I wanted to look at this one at length, both because it's the climactic scene and because. It's really funny. Nina! Oh my goodness! Wait! Did some, I, I heard like this. <laughs> I have to do that again. I have to do that again. That's my favorite moment in the entire film. I wouldn't laugh so hard if it weren't for the bong <laughs> that the sound effects do. It's like. Nina sound asleep. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, something's going on. What is it? I feel like something is watching me. It's... Oh, man, what a creeper next door. Let's, let's sneak over. Jonathan is watching over her, right? Are you, what, are you sleepwalking again? What's with the zombie arms, Nina? Are you... Uh, oh, you're just opening the window. I see, okay. Open the window. You should do... Oh, there he is. He's like... Hey there, good looking. Yeah. I'm your neighbor. Hi. Hi. Come on, Nina. Do you really want to do this? Can you do it? Remember, Nina, remember the parade of coffins. Everyone's dying, and you could prevent it. Yes, you saved Jonathan. There he is, bathed in light. Your husband whose life you saved. By interposing your love now, you must interpose your love and purity of heart. Uh, between your between all of the people of Bremen and Dracula, are you going to do it? Oh, yes, that's an invitation if I've ever seen one. I'll be right over. Yes, sir. <laughs> How awesome is that? I can't believe I just did that. I really did it. Oh, now I have to find somebody to get rid of my husband, though. Coming right over. Oh, did I? Is that ugly guy really? No, it's okay. I must be strong. Jonathan, I must get rid of you. <laughs> I, Jonathan, get up. I feel like I have to swoon. 
Call the professor. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's the middle of the night. We need a house call from the professor. Yeah, I could really use a zoology lecture right now. That's absolutely what I need. Please, quick, bring him for a zoology lecture. And Jonathan does what he always does and dashes merrily about. Jonathan is very dynamic. And she's like, okay, I got rid of him. So is he coming? Is he still staring at me through the window? I should check to make sure he's not bong over there again. Hey, yeah, all's quiet, but the door's open. Is it? Uh-oh. Here comes the shadow up the stairs. <gasps> yeah, I know. He's like right there, and his shadow is going to open the door. Look, his shadow is twice as tall as the door, but it's still going to open the door and come in. That's right. Nina, stagger. Bed's that way. Don't fall on the floor. That would be embarrassing. You can make it. Stagger. A little more. Two more feet. You've got it. This is my favorite moment in the whole film. Or, at least, okay, my other favorite moment in the whole film. Here comes the shadow hand up to her heart, and it's gonna go! Grab her heart. There it is. Professor, Professor, we urgently need a zoology lecture. Yes, yes, it's Nina. Quick, take off your bathrobe. Why are you wearing your bathrobe? It's a nice, nice hat too. Oh good, you still have your waistcoat on underneath it though. That's a relief. And here he is, creepily. Uh, look, I, I, I just, how you just see his head, right? Uh, doesn't he look... I mean, that, notice how... Pause here for a second. This is intimate, obviously. I mean, she's lying in bed, and he is, you know, uh, he has his mouth on her neck right here, though, of course, it's all shadowy, so you don't see it in very intimate detail. But notice from the body posture how not, I mean, for, for a scene this intimate, again, her lying in bed, him, his mouth on her neck, this is about as little erotic as I think it could be made. I mean, the way that he's kind of hunkering there, um, you know, he's just kind of kneeling up, kneeling down on the floor next to the bed, and especially like with that hand, like holding her hair, her head out of the way uh, in this like fairly callous fashion, and not again, not not showing real any kind of sort of shadows of intimacy or uh, or, or, or 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 tenderness or, or sort of any kind of sexual touch or anything, um, and, and indeed he just looks like a predator. Right, like somebody that is sneaking in, and uh, you know something that is sneaking in, and kind of like, like a I don't know, like a like a like a rat might do, or or or, or something. I mean, it's it's this. It's fascinating because again, this if if there's going to be a moment that's going to be sexually charged, um, and of course we've really gotten no um, in the vampirism from the beginning. Nowhere in this film is there any real sort of sexual overtones. Um, you know, like of course we see uh, uh, many times, both with the parallels to marriage and with the three female vampires and all that stuff, and the way in which. Um, um, exactly, Sharon. It is more like a, much more like an animal feeding. Um, uh, that's that's definitely what I see here too. Um, but and yet we still have Nina's love, right? And the significance of Nina's love and Nina's purity of heart in I'm, in, in a sense that I'm not even a hundred percent sure exactly what that means, right? But anyway, um, 
so in in the book we had the emphasis on those love not just loves but the, the holiest of loves right the love between husband and wife the love between mother and child right and those were the things that were being taken and taken and twisted uh in the in the the you know for for the vampiric usage um we have nina's love as a major theme but that doesn't seem in that way to be connected with dracula if anything it's merely the opposite right as he seems to be i was about to call him cold-bloodedly which is a little bit ironic uh intermittently cold-bloodedly i guess but anyway um uh, you know for him to be just with this kind of with the pitiless with the pitilessness of a of a predator um uh you know, going after people and her caring for first her husband and then her willingness to sacrifice herself for all of the people of the city, the people who haven't been, you know, carried down the street in coffins yet. Um, so we do see, like, it's, if there's a relationship there, it's a relationship of opposites, right? Not a relationship, not, a, not, not that kind of a perversion or a twisting. It's in that way, I think, a much simpler uh, kind of treatment of the whole thing. Oh, the cock is crowing. The cock is crowing and your goose is cooked, my friend. And he slowly looks. He's like, oh, shoot, is it dawn already? Oh, that's not good. And then you hear the morning, you know, the morning larks twittering. Uh-oh. There's Renfield. Who has a sense that something is bad. Oh, no, somehow I know what's going on. Beware! It's too late, Renfield. Here comes Jonathan with the professor. Oh, good. I'm so glad you brought the professor back because that was exceptionally useful. What are you doing, Renfield? Trying to get out to help your master, I guess? Now, you notice what's happening here? See the shadows in the background, right? We've got the city, which was in shadow. And now, as dawn is coming, the shadow is receding. Of course, we should be remembering the shadow of the vampire, right? Just as the shadow of Nosferatu overlay Jonathan, right? As he was lying asleep, and then the shadow receded. And, you know, again, it was both times it was a vertical movement, right? As the shadow climbs up the screen uh, and then recedes down the screen. And now we see the shadow of the vampire, which had been lying like a plague upon the city, is now receding as Nina has successfully intervened and sacrificed herself. And uh, so now, now instead of the shadow of the vampire overcoming things, the light is overcoming the vampire himself. And he's like, I gotta stand in this dark corner. Uh, what do I do? Uh, I'll make a break for it. Maybe if I go super fast past the light, I can outrun the sunbeams. I'm gonna. Okay, um, 
Yeah, Karita says the film feels like a myth of explanation or an urban legend. Yeah, well, that's how it's contextualized at the beginning. It's a myth of expl- of explanation, right? Here's how that. Here's what really happened in that epidemic. And of course, we're told right after this, everybody who's sick and not yet dead it gets better, right? And so the plague is over and everything is fine, except I guess for Nina, uh, she appears to die. Um, she stays up for long enough to. Um, she stays up for long enough to. Um, you know, greet Jonathan when he comes back uselessly with the professor, uh, but then she appears to collapse, uh, and then he seems to be mourning at the end. So I think she actually does does die uh, there, and 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 actually sacrifices her life. Um, so it's this is this is sort of a, a fascinating turn that they've taken to this film, and see, these are the kinds of choices that I'm really most interested in, like the compression stuff, like the bits of the story that they take out or the characters that they change. Sometimes that's really interesting, but this is the stuff that's really cool, and you can see the radically different story that this film is doing, and we can see the the kind of the power that they're giving to love here, though completely um, uh, completely independent. Of any kind of, uh, of of spiritual or Christian significance, um, uh, and, and again, left kind of sort of vague, and there's no explanation for the vampire himself, like what is it, where did they come from, any of that kind of thing. Uh, but um, anyway, let's uh, let's move on and talk about the second film, so I don't entirely lose uh, all my time here. It is time for Bella Lugosi. Now, big changes here, right? Now here, the changes that they make in the cast are very interesting. And there are some of these that I think are comparatively small, right? Uh, Like, for instance, even when the changes are are themselves very large changes, um, one example that I'm thinking of is how they make Mina, and I, I can stop, having to remember to refer to her uh, as Nina for whatever reason. But um, anyway, the, the the fact that they make Mina into Dr. Seward's daughter, right? Um, I mean, that's something that if you just sort of think about the book, it's like a, a really kind of jarring change to be like, okay, Mina is Dr. Seward's daughter now. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think that actually makes that much difference to the story. Uh, in fact, if anything, it kind of makes it a little neater uh, in the film, um, what I mean by that is, of course, you'll remember in the book all of the the sort of touching, in fact, even sort of gushy moments, right? When everyone is swearing eternal friendship to everybody else, and uh, you remember, Carita, you and I were joking about this on Twitter while you were reading it, um, you know, about how much you know, like there's just a lot of love in the room, right? When those people all get together, um, there's a whole lot of affection among the the, the little group. Thinking especially of the way in the latter part, of, you know, the second half of the book, um, the sort of the Mina-centric half of the book, you know, where you've got, she's married to Jonathan, right? And they love each other very much. And then you've got Van Helsing's affection for them. And then everybody, Dr. Seward and Quincy and Arthur are all like sort of, you know, they, they all love her and they're all devoted to her. And, you know, so it, by making Mina into Dr. Seward's daughter, um, it kind of... It still establishes the fact that Mina is sort of the, the focal point of affection, 
right? But it's but it simplifies it. We don't have to have that like Quincy and Arthur and Doctor Seward are in love with her, but not in love with her in that way. Right? I mean, it's just it, it makes it simpler on stage. So yes, Doctor Seward loves her. She's his daughter. Yes, John Harker. He's not Jonathan, which almost annoys me as much as the Nina thing. Um, but John Harker loves her because she's his fiance, right? So they have different relationships with her, but it's still like everybody loves Mina, right? So. Um, so that change, although it's a significant change, is not one that really, that I find very startling. Uh, this one, of course, is quite startling that we get near the beginning of the story. Um, we join the film already in progress immediately after the scene with the armadillos. I am Dracula. Yes, you are. It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. <laughs> Not much of a conversationalist is Dracula. So he's... Oh. The wolves. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. What music they make. Now, I have to admit, I didn't catch this, the significance of this moment. That moment. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say how many times I watched this film before I got that. He's following him up the stairs, right? Dracula just walked in front, and then he gets to this wall of spider webs, which Dracula just passed through without disturbing, right? I totally missed that. He's got. Oh, the huge spider! The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. The blood is the light. Mr. The reveal! Uh, yes. Good answer. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's what more can you say, right? Um, of course, right, exactly, Tom. It makes Dracula the spider, right? The spider doesn't disturb the web. Um, and of course, I love the, 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 the sort of the inescapable visual symbolism of this, right? I mean, especially if you look at it from this shot, right? It's like the, the, the spider has lured the fly into the web proportionally, right? Renfield is like about the size of a, spy, of a fly uh, within the web that has been, uh, that has been woven there. Um, so, of course, we do, we do in this scene get Dracula established as like the, the spider who is, laying his, his, uh, is, uh, is spinning his web for the unwary fly, right? Why? Because the blood is the life, right? Um, but and again that 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 implication of his preternatural abilities that's the word i was looking for before preternatural that's that's the, not supernatural but preternatural um supernatural in the book preternatural here or at least in nosferatu anyway okay point is um he passed through the, the through the web without leaving a hole right and then renfield had to had to had to carve his way through um and he's naturally kind of freaked out about this whole thing um the giant spider on the wall is like the least of his concerns. But 
this is of course also where we get the um uh we 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 get the reveal that this is Renfield, right? Now, I mean, I <clears throat> I call it a reveal. It's a reveal to people who have read the book, right, and are coming to this film from the book. Um, there's no hint to this point, and if you know the book, you have absolutely every reason to think that this is Jonathan Harker uh, that we're seeing and that we've been following. I don't remember. This is something like ten minutes into the film, seven, eight minutes at least. Um, you know, we had his time at the inn, and um, he did get a crucifix put around his neck by the peasant lady, um, and all that stuff. But it's not until here, it's not until that moment, this is the time when he is identified as Renfield, um, when Dracula just says that. And of course, it's fascinating and quite conspicuous that it, his name is, he is identified as Renfield at the time when Dracula delivers the line, the blood is the life. Um, uh, you know, so we see him sort of teaching Renfield his uh, his his famous line. I know, Erica, it's extremely disconcerting when you come to this again. If you know the book at all well, and you're like, "Wait, what? Renfield? What on earth is happening?" Um, that is a big casting change, right? And and it makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, of course, in many ways, I think about this. This is something that. A lot of it, even even earlier in this class when we were talking about the book, um, a lot of you almost wanted that, right? Uh, you know, many people were sort of dubious about or or, or 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 kind of confused about Renfield's status and the nature of the connection between Dracula and Renfield, right? How is it that Renfield can sense him? Why is there this connection between them? Why has he been worshipping him long and afar off? How is it that he can detect the presence of the vampire? All of these things are unexplained on a purely, you know, sort of literal level. We don't, we, we don't know the mechanism of how these things work. Um, the story isn't interested in that exactly. Again, we don't need there to have been, and there apparently in the book is not any actual communication between them or anything like that. Um, Stoker is very okay with that. Right, we have lots of people who can sense things from a distance, kind of like Nina in Nosferatu, and um, and the and the sort of the calling of like to like is something that we're just sort of asked to accept. The film doesn't want to ask us to accept that, right? The film instead, by making Renfield into the agent who goes to Dracula's castle with a real estate contract, um, the film is giving us. A, a rational explanation for why it is a that Renfield goes crazy and b that he has a relationship with Dracula at all and calls him master, right? Um, so that makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, it's a, or at least it's a simplification that I uh, um, I can accept. I don't like it. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, mostly because I think, you know, the thing that is lost is, well, I miss the thing that was lost. And what's more, I find the thing that's lost a little bit conspicuous. This film is going to be very interested in the, um, the connection, sort of the mental connection between Dracula and other people, right? Um, so to me, having Renfield be, you know, a lunatic back in England who, when Dracula comes up, has this, you know, is, is able to establish this mental connection with Dracula, 
isn't all that different from the kind. I mean, we, we will see that that this film is very interested in mental control and mental connections like that. Um, but it's like they weren't comfortable with it going happening over a long distance or something or just you know I don't know. Um, they wanted a simpler explanation and it's okay, but it's it's an interesting choice um, and we'll have to see sort of the consequences of that um, as we move forward. But of course the other thing is then what's Jonathan's role? Right? If we give this role to Renfield, and that, or, and, but it's not just this role, right? Um, it's not like going to Transylvania is a job and we're, we're going to give that job to Renfield instead of, instead of Harker. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge and fundamental change to the nature of the story, right? Um, forget about Renfield and Harker particularly, that is, who their characters are. Think about just the role that is being played. The person who comes to Dracula's castle in the book is one of the people who will be one of the leaders of the resistance against Dracula. And everything that he experiences and everything that he learns, the, his imprisonment and his sort of suffering at the hands of Dracula is going to be used against him. Indeed, the insights that are gained from Dracula's own conversations, which Jonathan records, are going to be some of the things which are going to be most pivotal in them figuring out what's going on, understanding him better and understanding him well enough to hunt him down and kill him. Um, so uh, in the book, what is done, what Dracula does to his victim at the beginning ends up, I mean, it's not quite as simple as it ends up bringing about his own undoing, but it's kind of close to that, actually. Um that's the that's the, the the function of those early chapters in the bigger overall story. When we think about it in the film, now Renfield going to Castle Dracula at the beginning is almost the opposite, right? Instead of this person being sort of at the at the heart, or at least in the forefront of the resistance against Dracula, um, you know, the guy that he comes that he brings in and imprisons. Uh, at the beginning, uh, being the one who cuts his head off at the end. Instead, the guy who comes is becomes his slave, right? And it turns out that he was just basically suborned by Dracula all along. A, a couple minutes from here, Dracula will tell him, like, did you tell no one of your coming as as you were instructed, right? And Renfield's like, no, I kept my coming a secret. Um, it's, he is being suborned as Dracula's agent and servant from the very beginning. That's the whole plan, and the plan works, Right, um, so and again, I, I miss that. It's simpler. It's more straightforward, and I understand that. But I don't like that actually. I, that that I mean, the simplicity that has been achieved, or rather, the complexity that has been ironed out in order to achieve that simplicity of narrative, makes the narrative I think much much poorer, um, in its own way. And then we're still left, Karita, as you were just saying, with what, but then what, what for Jonathan? Um, so for, forgetting about the way that that role and that function, the function of that part of the story like I was just discussing, but what about the character himself? What about Jonathan Harker? Excuse me, John Harker. Um, what, uh, what's left for him? What role does he play? Oops, not my trash. That's not what we're talking about. There we go. Here's the role he plays. This is near the end. This is after Mina's been bitten. Oh, John, I'm so glad you're here. What a 
you, me dear? Dressing me in very shiny dresses, apparently. Oh, in my room. What a horrible smell of that awful weed. Oh. It's been like a nightmare. Oh. Fortunately, you're here to save me. Why are you looking at me like that? Because you're sparkly. You're so... Like a changed girl. You could say that. Oh, you look wonderful. I feel wonderful. I've never felt better in my life. Oh, I'm so glad to see you like this. Oh, that's right, I, I forgot. I forgot I messed up this video clip. Sorry, going back ahead to where we were. Why are you looking at me like that? Why are you me? me in that uncomfortable fashion? So, like a changed girl. Oh, you look wonderful. I feel wonderful. I've never felt better in my life. Oh, I'm so glad to see you like this. I've been awfully worried about you. Mr. Hawker, you've got to bring Miss Mina inside. Here That's comes. That's all right, Briggs. Now that I'm here. Run along, Briggs. Don't worry. <laughs> Jonathan, come. Let's sashay over to the to the that was Jonathan. That was John Harker. This is I. This is to me. This is the most John Harker moment in the film. Right here it is. Side. That's all right, Briggs. Now that I'm here. Run along. There we go. That's all right, Briggs. Now that I'm here. Right. Um, John Harker in the film believes that he is in control. Right. He is. Um, he seems thoroughly invested with the sort of social stereotypes of like he's very confident in his masculine role, right? I must take my you know my little woman under my protection, and when she's with me and under my protection, certainly nothing can happen to her, right? Um, when she's being when Van Helsing is there and he's like, I've got the wolf bane, I'm going to protect her. What's John Harker's reaction? He doesn't believe it. He's just like, let her come away with me. I will take her away uh, somewhere, you know, to somewhere else, and there I will protect her. Right. Um, so he is, yes, an idiot. Right. That's certainly that's certainly true. Um, but uh, he's he's. Um, Yes, you're right, Joyce. Uh, Joyce is pointing out the significance of the change in Mina's clothing. Uh, that she looks... Um, I don't know, Joyce. How would you describe how she looks here? Would you say she looks voluptuous, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of sensual and uh, 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 sort of flagrantly sexy. Um, I mean, flagrantly sexy is kind of what we get as she turns and leads the way, right? You're like, da-da, I'm ex. I'm, I'm ex extravagantly swaying my hips as I walk away and look where he's looking <laughs> right uh, he's, he's, he's totally fallen for it um, in other words my argument would be that the role that John Harker ends up playing in the film is very like the role that Dr. Seward plays in the book um, he's a skeptic for one thing he doesn't, he's the one who's most resistant to all of this vampire stuff, right? All of this nonsense. Now, it's not given the same force that it is in the book. We don't get this development of the whole, um, you know, the whole, like, modern world versus older belief kind of thing, 
Right. That's not a. Th- it doesn't. That, that that that's not really a thing in this film. At least it's not one that's highly emphasized in those terms in the in like you know the ancient world and the modern world. Um, but the question of belief does come in, right? Van Helsing talks about that. You know, the greatest weapon of the vampire is uh, the the the, the uh, unwillingness of people to believe in him, and it is um, it is particularly the the role of John Harker to voice that skepticism, right? Like John Seward was the 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 mouthpiece of that modern skepticism in the book. But and also like Dr. Seward, though in a different way, he I mean you think about it, Dr. Seward was also the one who was most invested in accepted societal roles, especially in accepted societal roles that in fact are counterproductive right when it comes to opposing vampires um especially with those with gender roles right he was the one who you know the he he was mr like it would infallibly have wrecked her right um he never took this kind of position right this kind of masculine protector like you are my little woman and i'll keep you safe thing that he that john harker has going on here um but uh um, but anyway, we, we do, we do, st- we, so although it has a different kind of flavor, again, sort of husbandly instead of, uh, instead of, uh, physicianly, right? Uh, but nevertheless, we still see, we still see those kind of things. So, um, so yeah, skeptical, blinded by societal stereotypes, we do get sort of that voice here, uh, in John Harker. So in a sense, you see how, um, th- things are being, Things are being kind of collapsed in. We're, 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 it's, the film is keeping some of those concepts and themes alive, which I think is cool uh, and a really good effort. Um, but um, but it's hard not to mourn for Jonathan Harker, right? I mean, this buffoon <laughs> who uh, um, uh, uh, Karita in the last class, Karita was saying that her, she she believes that really the whole point of uh, the primary point of John Harker uh, is just to be is just to be hot. You know, he's uh, uh, he's 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 a pretty face mostly, <clears throat> and he is kind of a pretty face. Admittedly, he's really the only uh, the only really attractive male. I mean, Renfield's kind of cute, uh, but um, you know, yeah, you don't have a, uh, no one's going to make a heartthrob out of Van Helsing. You know, and he is otherwise kind of the hero of this story. So you have you know, fortunately the uh, uh, the bold, dashing, and attractive uh, John Harker uh, there, even though he is not, uh, even though he's a bear of very little brain. Um, there are several other shifts, smaller shifts, which I found kind of interesting. Um, let's think about the significance of this one. Here's Van Helsing talking with the now aged. Dr. Seward, because of course he has to be Mina's dad now, so we have this grandfatherly Dr. Seward. Um, uh, (laughs) Karina confesses that she recognizes that it's an outward sign of her moral corruption, but she'd still wear that dress. (laughs) Karina would still wear that dress any day of the week. I hear it, it is a nice dress and very shiny. Though voluptuous you have to admit anyway okay um back to uh i love the severity of van helsing's flat top 
right? You know, he looks like, he's like, I am one part Dutch doctor and one part, you know, uh, uh, like Marine Colonel or something. Uh, anyway. I might have known. I might have known. Of course. We know why the What do you have in your wallet? How we can make them stop. A bouquet. You know too much to live, Van Helsing. Now, now, Rentail. <laughs> now, now. Get no more out of him now for a while. By the way, that's as stern as they get uh, in this sanatorium, right? Uh, it's like, Renfield, you better stop misbehaving or I'm going to say now, now to you again. Right. Uh, I love how Renfield obviously like has the run of the joint. There's like no restraint on Renfield whatsoever. Homicidal maniac on the loose. Nobody's worried. Uh, he's always popping up in their house in random private places. Anyway. Take him away, Martin. Take him away, Martin. Yeah. I'm warning. Really, the moral conscience of the of the film, I think, is Martin the Keeper. Uh, I'm, I'm joking about that. Um, oh, wait, hang on, Renfield. What do you have to say? What are you warning us about? Dr. Seward, if you don't send me away, you must answer for what will happen to Miss Mina. All hmm. right, Martin. Come along now. It sounds like a threat. Like, I'm going to do something to Miss Mina if you don't send me away. We'll come back to that. But um, Van Helsing, that was a very dramatic reveal of that little nosegay you've got there in your wallet. That herb that excited him so. Yeah. Oh, I know what that is. What? It's a plant that grows in Central Europe. The natives there use it to protect themselves against vampires. Renfield reacted very violently to its scent. See what? I want you to have Renfield closely watched by day and night. Especially by night. Yeah, that'll happen. Yeah, they know they know how to watch people closely in this place. Believe me, if they don't watch them closely here, you know, it's not going to happen anywhere. Um, what's the effect of this? Wolfbane replacing garlic with wolfbane, right? <clears throat> I mean, again, this was another place where knowing the book, we totally knew what was going on. Just like at the beginning, we totally knew that that was Jonathan Harker showing up at Castle Dracula, and then we're like, whoa, Renfield, what? This is another moment where I did that same kind of double take, right? What is that herb that you, you know, and I knew the answer, right? You knew the answer. It's garlic, obviously. No, 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 no. Wolfbane. Why? Why? Um... <laughs> Arthur says the Garlic Farmers Union spoke up. Uh, Joyce says garlic is just so blah. Exactly. It's really common, right? That's part of the of the story, right? I mean, that comes up in the book. Remember, that's Lucy's reaction when Van Helsing says, you know, I've sent away for these special flowers and they will help you. Um, and she she at first kind of takes that seriously and then she smells the flowers and she's like oh but professor i believe you're only putting up a joke on me right these are only common garlic common garlic 
right? They're dismissed as common garlic. Um, it's for their commonness that they are that that Lucy kind of poo-poo's them, right? Uh, in the book, that common herb has been replaced by Tomas, as you say, something outside of the ordinary, right? Um, uh, it's something exotic, something foreign, but not just randomly foreign, right? Not like a rare herb which only grows in Japan or something like that. Um, it's something from Dracula's native country, right? They have to import something. Uh, the, the the locals over there, the natives, excuse me to use his word, the natives over there um, know how to repel vampires, right? They... they, they so we need to go and we need to import. Um, we here in England are helpless against vampires. We need to both get the knowledge of those, uh, you know, of those Eastern European peasants, but also we need to import their tools, right, so that we can so that we can have those. And that puts, I think, the whole story in a very different light, really. Um, native English things aren't any good against the vampire. And that, I think, makes for a fascinating change. Um, makes for a fascinating change in the story. Um, anyway, well, we can, we, can, we can keep thinking about that. Starting to get late, though, I should, I, should, uh, I should move on. So, okay. One of the major themes of the film, one of the things that comes up most often is mind control. Right. The major power, I mean, the things that we see the vampire do most often as far as the use of his supernatural powers, um, of course, transforming himself into things, especially bats. He spends more time as a bat than as any other kind of creature in this film. We don't see him turn himself into sw- into a swarm of rats, but he does hang on, uh, hang around as a bat uh, quite a bit. Um, but the other thing that we see him do, apart from that transformation, is mind control, right? Hypnosis. And it's very like hypnosis. This is the first example that we get. We see him kind of dominate Renfield, and Renfield gets freaked out. But Renfield's so freaked out anyway. This is one of the most striking moments early in the film, because he's like talking to a normal person in a normal environment, right? This poor usher lady uh, at the symphony, uh, where Dracula goes, right? I mean, Dracula in the film has culture, right? As soon as he lands in England, what's the what's the second thing that he does? Head right to the symphony, right? This is where this is where he goes. Um, but here we see him taking a totally random woman who has no connection with him and assert, you know, dominating her and asserting his will over her. And after you deliver the message, you will remember nothing. I now say. I now say. Obey. Obey. <laughs> and off she goes in this hypnotized state. Dr. Stewart. Uh, yes? You're wanted on the telephone. Thank you. I have to say I have no idea why he hypnotized this lady for her to have her open the curtains and say you're wanted on the telephone. It's not like he was trying to get rid of Dr. Seward so that he can talk to the other three by themselves in his absence because he is still standing right out there and as soon as Dr. Seward stands up to go answer his phantom uh, and fictitious phone call, 
Dracula is going to come in and introduce himself to Dr. Seward while he's still standing there. So I don't even understand the phone call business really at all. Um, but, um, but that's okay. Um, uh, okay, so we see, so, so, this, and so this looks most obviously like hypnotism, right? Um, the, the, the particular sort of flavor of mind control uh, that he is able to exert, but it's not the only one, right? We see him exerting his mental control, extending his mental control in different ways, as in his communication with the sort of vamping out Mina in her shiny dress. Uh, this is after they've sashayed over onto the balcony, and they're now having a casual chat. She loves foggy nights. But darling, I could never have said silly. I would never have said I was afraid of the night. The night is the best. Um, fog, by the way, it does look like Dracula can turn himself into fog, but certainly he is associated with the fog. Uh, you'll notice how often it's foggy, especially when Dracula is around. It seems to be, in the film, a kind of a sign of his presence or influence. I couldn't. I love the night. That's the only time I feel really alive. There's that bat again. Yes. Look out, you'll get in your hair. <laughs> you'll get in your hair. The bat is bigger than her head. Right? I don't think getting in her hair is really the issue here. Besides, of course, he, he almost whacked her upside the head right there. Anyway, but, of course, the important thing is, is try to ignore the imbecile swinging his arms wildly around. Okay, good. Um, this is, um, it's possible. I mean, we do hear audibly the squeaking of the bat. It's, of course, possible that this is like she under, because she's transitioning to becoming a vampire. We, you know, she has some kind of comprehension of bat language. And so he's just talking to her in bat language that neither we nor John Harker can understand. Um, but this seems to be more likely to be, you know, a, a, an extension of his mental influence as well, because he has connected to her. You know, his brain is saying to her, not he's not his brain isn't saying come to her; it's saying something else. Um, so, uh, <laughs> a fool, but a handsome fool, John Harker remains, says Carita. Uh, I agree. So, so we do get a certain amount of breadth in the kind of um, uh, in the kind of mental. Uh, uh, influence or control which Dracula seems to be able to exert we we can see from the very beginning of his career in England that his hypnotic power his 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 mental domination is part of the victimization process right it's part of how he you know, how he victimizes people Everybody remembers Dracula's climactic first victim when he arrives in London, right? Fresh off the boat. No, I don't want a flower for my buttonhole. So he transfixes her with the hypnotic whammy 
and then closes in for an enormously awkward hug. Is that scream supposed to be her? I think so. Now look at him just stalking off. Bold as you please. Um, after his uh, after his little snack. Um, so yeah, he uh, uh, there's several jokes in the last class about how he the first thing he does when he arrives in London is kill Eliza Doolittle. Um, so sad. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. But anyway, um, so we can see how this is all part of the, you know, the, one of the things that I think that we can see in this first scene is from here he's going to go straight into the symphony and hypnotize that poor Usher girl, though apparently he doesn't kill her, so there's that, right? Um, but again, the very, this very first image that we get is of him coming in and just striking this random person, this random woman, and here, unlike in the other one, we have a clearly erotic situation, right? The hug was awkward, but it was very distinctly a hug, right? This is not. He, this was not like the. This is was not like an animal, a, a predator feeding. This is, especially with her holding the flower, right? You know, this is a. This is a man closing in to embrace a woman, right? Uh, I mean, you know, in a predatorial, uh, uh, vampiric way, but. But the, the, the erotic overlay is now very clear, where that was, I think, very much not the case uh, in, in Nosferatu. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, so, so, so we, see, we see that erotic element. We see the mind control, right? She, she is absolutely transfixed by his, uh, by his mental control at first, and it makes her docile to his will. And in fact, making women docile and completely subservient to him seems to be a thing. In fact, that's the end point. Um, where does see, but see Carita, see where what, wearing the shiny dress gets you? Where it gets you is being slowly frog marched. Now, see, no, she's walking with her arms out in front of her like this, right? She's completely robotic. Um, you want to see she's not moving her head she's not looking around he looked down so he told her to stop he mentally commanded her to stop when you're at the door opening while his attention is on something else oh what a relief Renfield then he turns back to her oh wait you walk again And there she goes, right? Um, she is like, she is like, well, you know what she's like, right? She's just like the dwarves when Aule first creates them, right? She only moves when his mind is on her. This is Mina in complete domination, right? This is the end point of her victimization by Dracula. Um, it's not yet fully irreversible, apparently, right? I mean, she is still able to be saved when Dracula is killed, apparently, as we can get from the end of the film. Sort of. If we can get anything from the end of the film. But we'll get to there. Um, but again, the, 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 this, the, the mental control that he operates over her now is absolute. Right? Um, he no longer has to stare her in the eyes. He's, he's behind her. Right? He's looking at the back of her 
Okay, he's not looking at the back of her head. But anyway, um, he's uh, staring at her from behind, right? And he is uh, able to, to command it. Clearly, she is just following his mental commands, only moving when he commands her to. So this is, this is, um, um, this is the, the, the place where he gets to. And of course, the turning point in the film is also similarly associated with this mental with this mental command the mental command is i think really the most essential element of the vampire and the vampire power in the film as it's depicted van helsing van helsing the showdown you have learned what you have learned it would be well for you to return to your own country i prefer to remain and protect those whom you would destroy. You are too late. My blood now flows through her veins. She will live through the centuries to come. As I have lived. Should you escape us, Dracula, we know how to save Miss Nina's soul, if not her life. If she dies, Small victories. But I shall see that she dies by night, and I will have Carfax Abbey torn down stone by stone, excavated a mile around. I will find your earth box and drive that stake through your heart. Come here. like the heart of Nina. Don't do it, Van Helsing. Don't give in. Don't obey. He's falling under the power of the vampire. Yes. <laughs> I love this scene so much. Oh, and he resists because Van Helsing has a strong mind. That's right. This is this is the turning point, right? This is the point after which Dracula is basically defeated. He's he's in retreat after this point. Um, his primary power is this power of mental command, his the power of his will, his his, his ability to assert his will over others. And Van Helsing stares him down. Don't you just love Van Helsing's body posture right there? I just love that kind of kind of jaunty angle that he stands at with his fists down by his side like a like a wild west gunslinger uh in his natty three-piece suit and his awesome spectacles and his wonderful haircut really really good um yeah yeah um yeah, Mick is uh, talking about so how this it's really it's more animal magnetism than hypnosis. I keep using the term hypnosis for two reasons. First of all, because um it's the term from the book, right? So it's those are the terms in which I'm thinking because that's uh uh that's um that's the 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 vocabulary of the book. The second thing though is I think I really do think it operates more like hypnosis though, cuz it's not just 
or maybe I, I myself imperfectly understand animal magnetism, but my understanding, the understanding that I do have, is that that's more like a kind of like forcible charisma, right? Like I will, you will be drawn to me against your will. Not like when he's giving the usher girl commands, right? He's saying, you're going to do this and then you're going to do that. And afterwards, you're not, you're not going to remember any of this. Obey, right? That's giving orders like a hypnotist. Does, can animal magnetism do that? I mean, it's, at least anyway, that's not what I've... Uh, what I've ever inter- so mine is the modern interpretation of animal magnetism, possibly. I don't know too much about it. Maybe that is the vocabulary that they would have used more in uh, in uh, in in you know in the, in 1931, which is when the film came out. Um, it's possible. Again, I, I use hypnotism because that's I talk about hypnotism because that's the uh, that's the term from the book, and it does seem to act like that. Um, I guess, Mick, the other thing that I would say is uh, hypnosis, the way that we think about hypnosis today isn't like what Van Helsing does to Mina in the book either. Um, so it's it's all about, um, um, uh, it's, all, it's all about uh, um, the... Um, it's all about the assertion of your, like the domination of one will by another, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Karita points out that she and I have obviously both found our Halloween costumes. She's going to dress up as Vampy Mina, and I should dress up as Gunslinger Van Helsing. Okay, all right. I, I can, I can, uh, I can go with that. Um, but okay. So as I say, this is obviously the climactic moment. Um, and uh, a really huge deal to resist his when his will is resisted, he is essentially thwarted, um, and it's all it's all kind of downhill from there. There, this sort of scene brings up, of course, another really important point, which is the reassertion of the crucifix. Right, the Nosferatu removed all of those Christian symbols. We get them back in Dracula. This, of course, is the pair. It looks very inviting. Uh, this is, um, sorry, this is Renfield back in Castle Dracula. This is the exact parallel scene to the one in which Jonathan Harker used such poor knife technique uh, in Nosferatu when he cut his finger. Um, one of the one of the queerest direct visual parallels between this film and the and, and the earlier film, which was well known to the makers of this film, um, but of course. We'll see it's significant. It's very inviting. Out. Oh no, he cut his finger on a paper clip. It must have blood. I'm going to I love the hand. Oh Oh, it's nothing serious, just a small cut from that paper clip. It's just a scratch. And he drinks the blood, of course. Oh, that looks tasty right there. This is very old wine. I hope you will like it. Mm. 
you drinking? I never drink. Why? Why? Best line in the film. Well. <laughs> I never drink. Why? Um, the uh, the reassertion of the crucifix. I love, by the way, the the concept that you know, like Renfield trying to interpret what's happening here. Um, you know, and it's a wonderful moment because, of course, like everything is so strange and like the Count is acting so weird and Renfield is trying to understand it in some kind of terms that he can see. So he doesn't understand, of course. He just sees him. It's got his bloody finger, right? And here's the Count like <sighs> reeling back. And Renfield's like, oh, this must be, he, he must really hate the sight of blood, right? Uh, that was a pretty extravagant reaction, but, you know, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tomas says I, he finds it puzzling the only blood shown in a vampire movie is a single drop resulting from a paper cut. Um, I think that's mostly due to uh, movie restrictions at the time in the 30s they couldn't i mean they, they weren't able to weren't weren't allowed to do much in the way of gore uh so you're not going to see blood flying all over the place uh in these uh in these early films i suspect that that's a big part of it but you're right it is conspicuous that that's that drop of blood is literally the only blood that we ever see on screen in a film all about the sucking of blood um anyway the crucifix returns and we see the repulsion uh the and it's even it's almost like described in the book right he he must he must take his place far off and silent with respect as as van helsing says in the book about the dracula's reaction to the crucifix um of course to return to awesome van helsing who just stared down dracula He's ready for action. Tighten your belt, Van Helsing. Do that thing that Quincy does. More wolfbane. More effective than wolfbane, Count. Indeed. Ah. Back in the pocket. There you go. All right. (laughs) So good. So good. So, in this climactic moment, right, we get the crucifix as the thing which is most effective in repelling him, better than Wolfsbane, right? Um, But, okay, so we get the Christian stuff again, right? It was removed from Nosferatu. But I have to say, um, it made Nosferatu hold together a little bit more. That is... Okay, it was a little bit odd, the removal of all spiritual elements and the kind of naturalizing of the vampire and making him into some kind of super predator, right? Which could kill whole bunches of people all at once. Um, But uh, at least that was coherent, right? It was cohesive. The reintroduction of the crucifix in the film, I find a little bit confusing. Well, not confusing exactly, just out of left field. In the book, the connection between the crucifix and the vampire was very forceful, right? I mean, it was just one piece in a large 
uh, and a big picture that we were getting uh, on the relationship between Dracula and, um, you know, Christian stuff, spiritual stuff. Uh, you know, that whole, uh, uh, that whole Dracula as the anti-Jesus thing that was, you know, go, it's, it was just one small part of that, of that picture, which was a big theme and then becomes the dominant theme um, at the end of the story. It plays no real other part in this film. It's isolated into this, these couple incidents, and nobody ever talks about it. Nobody. It's just like another Tulio Aki. I got my wolf bane in one pocket and my crucifix in the other pocket. It's merely a tool, merely a weapon to be used, and 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 it does, they don't they don't take it anywhere. They don't do anything with that exactly. Why? I mean. In the film, like there's a rationale for, in a sense, not exactly, for why Wolfsbane um, repels him. Or at least it's, you know, we know it's from his home country and it's this exotic herb that has some, for some reason, anti-vampire properties. But why why the crucifix? Why does he react like that to the crucifix? What does that have to do with being a vampire? What, how does that connect with what the vampire does and what's going on in the rest of the story around it? We just, we don't know. The film doesn't really go anywhere with that. And this is the problem that I begin to really have as this film goes on. Um, we get the emphasis on mental control, and I get that, and I think that's fine. It's, 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 it, it all works. But I feel like the thing really, kind of, the story really kind of unravels both the plot um, and the themes of the film really just get very ragged towards the end. Um, Take Renfield, for instance, right? Okay, so Renfield is the servant of the vampire, and I get that. Um, but um, what exactly is his role? I mean, in the latter parts of the film, right? He's the agent, literally the agent, like the first the real estate agent, and then the like undercover agent of the vampire, Um Throughout, you know, in, in this later part of the film, he claims to be serving Dracula. How? What's he meant to do? So let's go back to his begging to be sent away. In the film, this is very clear, right? The story of Renfield is very clear. We get his own selfishness, his extreme selfishness, and then his turning from his selfishness. How? By what? By Mina, right? When he meets Mina, and for the first time, he finds himself caring about something other than himself, right? He, his, his respect and admiration of Mina lead him to put his own interest aside and ultimately, in the end, to sacrifice his own life in an attempt to protect her. So when he comes to Dr. Seward and is begging Dr. Seward to send him away, it is because he really has Mina's best interests at heart. He knows he is under the control of the, of the vampire. He, he, he knows his own weakness. Um... And he is trying to prevent something terrible happening to Mina because he knows Dracula wants to get in and clearly suspects that that's why Dracula wants to get in. So the film, Renfield, is also begging to be sent away and says that if he's not sent away, he's, uh, then uh, what happens to Mina is going to be Dr. Seward's fault. So that seems very closely parallel. Is that what we see? Do we see him trying to throw off the sort of the, the, the yoke of, of Dracula's domination? Field. You are looking much better than you did this morning when I arrived. 
Thanks. I'm feeling much better. I am here to help you. You understand that, do you not? Why, of course. And I'm very grateful. Keep your filthy hands to yourself, Lord. I don't know what I missed there. I mean... Okay, the handshake with Van Helsing got a little bit lingering and intimate, right? That would make me uncomfortable, too. I don't know what Van Helsing was looking for. Was he examining his fingernails? Was he looking for arsenic poisoning? What exactly was he? I don't know what was going on there, but apparently Renfield is suspicious. Oh, Renfield. Now, now, I'll say now, now to you again. Oh, Dr. Seward, send me away from this place. Send me far away. Okay. Good question. My cries at night. They might disturb Miss Mina. Yeah. yeah? They might give her bad dreams, Professor Van Helsing. Bad dreams? Bad dreams. Oh. Now, I would love to think, love to think, that this shot was supposed to suggest to us that the moment that Renfield was saying that was a moment of particular freedom for him, as happens precisely at sunrise and sunset, like with Mina and with Renfield in the book, and that therefore we should interpret what he just revealed to them as him saying in this one moment of lucidity what he couldn't say at any other time. I'd love to think that. I don't actually believe that, though. I don't see any reason to think, because he's going to be talking in very similar ways a few minutes from this after we see the sun go all the way down. Um, we, we don't see that kind of contrast uh, going on here. Uh, Mark Ingram was thinking maybe he was taking his pulse, like Van Helsing does to Mina in the book, right? I don't know why, and I, I, I also don't know why Renfield would object Mark, unless he was ascertaining whether or not Renfield had a pulse, <laughs> perhaps. I don't know. But anyway, um, so anyway, like I said, I would love to think that the sun setting here indicated that and gave us that kind of a clue to what was happening in the scene, but I don't think so. So let's go back to what Renfield said. He said, why does he want to, is to, to leave? Because his cries at night might disturb Mina. Okay, seriously? They might give her bad dreams. Bad dreams, right? Now, we know that the dream thing is associated with Dracula and the coming of Dracula. We saw that, you know, the scene in which Mina describes her first encounter with Dracula, and she describes that in terms of a bad dream that she had, and her description of that dream are very, very close to the book. In fact, that piece of dialogue in the film is one of the closest one of the longest passages that's most close to the actual language of the book, it's almost a quotation of Mina's description of Dracula entering her bedroom in that first dream that she had, the, the whole pillar of cloud, pillar of fire uh, description. It doesn't give the biblical uh, reference in the film, but, but that, that whole scene is described very closely. And again, in the context of dreaming and her trying to get somebody to explain what her dream could possibly mean. So... We already have an association with Dracula's visitations to her with bad dreams, right? So he seems to be hinting 
on the bad dreams. Um, so what's he saying? Dracula comes to her because of him? Because he cries out in the night? Is he trying to say, I invite the vampire in, and so that's why the vampire is biting Mina? But if so, how on earth is sending him away going to do any good? He's already bitten her, right? It's already happened. Um, so the timing of that, if, if that's what in fact he's, he's meaning, the timing of that is just weird. What on earth is it going to... So not to mention his whole affect is really strange. The whole point of that speech in the book was that he was, you know, like, don't you see that I am sane and earnest now, right? That I am not a lunatic in a mad fit, um, uh, but a man who is fighting for his very soul. That's, Renfield in the book says that, right, to Dr. Seward. Um, we are clearly getting lucid, um, lucid Renfield, right, who is struggling against his, the, his sort of servanthood of Dracula. Is that what we're getting here in the film? Do we get Renfield trying to break free of Dracula's control? It's not at all obvious to me that that's what we're getting here. Um, I mean, the way that he is asking for his release just kind of sounds like he's manipulating them. Um, And I don't see how it can do any good. So... Yeah, I mean, Joyce, it does give the impression that he's trying to uh, to say what he can't say, what he's forbidden to say. Um, I agree, but I don't see the point. I, I, I don't understand. What's he think he's doing? What harm has he done to Mina so far? We don't even see him inviting Dracula in um, or even know necessarily that he has that role. We don't know. I don't know. It's it's It just it doesn't seem to me at all clear. Um that Renfield is having a moral struggle, right? Um, he's obviously worried, and we see him being worried in other places, that, um, uh, like this one, that Dracula will think him unloyal, right? Because he kind of looks unloyal. But here's, so let's look at, this is the end, this is the climax, as it is, of Renfield's character. So he's just come in, and John Harker and Van Helsing follow him to Carfax. And he, uh, th- so they, b- John Harker, being the moron that he is, as soon as he sees them here from a distance, he shouts in from the window, announcing their presence, right? Uh, like a complete buffoon. I didn't leave them here by myself. Yes, you did. I didn't know. You did I leave them here. So we see we hear his one-sided conversation with Dracula, right? Uh, Dracula never speaks aloud, but Renfield gets his message loud and clear. So we see him coming in and groveling for his life, right? I pr- I know, I promise, I am loyal to you. I didn't lead them here, right? Um, the command, and Renfield obeys. Quick. Mina, he's not thinking about Mina, so she's. No, you're not. Are you? I didn't betray you. Does it matter? Oh no! Don't, don't kill me. Let me live, please. Punish me, torture me, but let me live. I can't die with all those lives on my conscience. All that blood on my hands. What lives? What blood? Flies? The spiders? 
Oh no, the floppy corpse of Renfield rolling down the stairs and... Thump. Um, Renfield in the book dies a really good death, right? It's a self-sacrificial death. In his moment of death, you know, in, in, that, in, in his last scene, he is firmly turning away from Dracula. Notice, by the way, the significance of what he can say. You know, that final speech that he has, it's not dawn. It's not sunset. The fact that he can speak as openly as he does in the book, you know, in the when, uh, you know, right after Van Helsing drills a hole in his head, um, is to me the clearest indication, I think, that Stoker is intending us to believe that he has, in fact, freed himself entirely of the control of the vampire. He can now say things and explain things that he couldn't explain before. Renfield is free at the end because he finally and permanently stood up to Dracula um, and he's the only one, Renfield is the only one that we see under the control of Dracula like that who just shakes it off um, and manages successfully to turn away from it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's really, it's a triumphant moment in the book. Film Renfield, not so triumphant, right? He dies groveling for his life, protesting that he was loyal. Maybe he was loyal, maybe he wasn't loyal, but at the worst, you can't say that he rebelled against Dracula. You can't say that he stood up to him. You can't say that he, you can't even, I mean, at, at worst, you could say that maybe he did have rebellious thoughts. He did have unloyal thoughts, and Dracula knows it. Maybe Dracula's just annoyed. I don't know. Um, but um, but Renfield's end is really anticlimactic. I mean, what, what's, the, what's the arc of his character? Right, uh, I mean, it's just a, I mean, it's a tragedy, of course, in some ways. We have from the, you know, the cheerful uh, and sort of winsomely smiling and urbane Renfield that we got at the very beginning, um, uh, you know, becoming this sort of uh, 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 shrieking thing, uh, who then is is rolling down the stairs, um, but. Uh, um, Yeah, yeah. Um, it just... Um, I find Renfield's story not just less awesome than it is in the book, but just less clear, less coherent. It doesn't... I the, in the film, it just doesn't make all that much sense. Um, now let's look at... <clears throat> let's look at... Let's look at the ending. And again, here at the ending, I find it really begins to break down and, and to me gets very confusing. Not just, again, not, not plot-wise confusing, but thematically confusing. Um, uh, this is, um, oh, hang on, this is the wrong one. That's what this is. I don't want that one yet. I want this one first. Okay, here's Dracula. This is the first shot of Castle Dracula that we get. So Renfield... Uh, Chirpy, happy Renfield has just arrived at the inn where he's getting a crucifix around his neck. And then, meanwhile, past the Borgo Pass, we get Castle Dracula for the first time. This is a wonderful scene. I think this is one of the best done scenes in the whole film. Um, and it does such a marvelous job of establishing this sort of creepy other world that Dracula lives in, right? This is like crossing the border into fairy, except it's this twisted, horrible fairy, right? There in the castle is... Oh, can we get the, the mist? 
the dirt floor, and the coffins just lying there. What's going on with the coffins? The hand reaches out, just like the hand that will try to summon Van Helsing. The possums are looking on. I don't know why there's, okay, no, I do know why there's a possum. I learned this in the, in the first time I, I did this class. Um, that's a possum that is not a rat um, and we see him standing and we are drawn into his eyes right closer and closer love this scene right here the three vampire women so now he goes to ascend the stairs the, the mist on the ground behind him trailing behind him there love this scene just the, the 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 atmosphere of this scene the way this establishes like the world of death in which the vampires live this is the world of castle dracula it's so cool by the way so the the possum thing um the the uh i didn't know this one of the students who was attending the first time i ran this session um uh told me which i didn't know in 1931 the rule, the Motion Picture Association rules said you couldn't show rats on screen. Remember the rats in uh, uh, in Nosferatu? That was a German film, right? But in the American films at the time, you couldn't show a rat on screen. So they put a possum in. They clearly want. It's just like a large and deformed rat, right? It looks it looks kind of impre- impressive. Um, so we get possums and armadillos <laughs> infesting <laughs> infesting uh, Castle Dracula. The armadillos are just upstairs. Um, but um, but anyway, I just I, like I said, the whole atmosphere of this scene, um, and I love the being drawn into the creepy eyes. But notice the how the women are walking, right? We get these three women in this these stately postures, um, like Mina's going to be there at the end, right? In their trailing robes, or their trailing gowns, rather. But just standing there. Again, there's something so inhuman about this. This is like what looks like a group of people all together, but they're clearly not people, right? Here's her standing there like some kind of sentinel, looking off in this other direction. The two of them are coming up. Watch this one, right? Right as it cuts, she's turning in the other direction. Like, are they lining up? Are they just taking up some position where they stand? I mean, it's just, it's just weird, but it's creepy, right? They're not acting like normal people. That You know, most people, when they, you know, if they were to get up out of their coffee, they'd be like, hey, how's it going, right? You know, are you going to put the coffee on or should I? I mean, the, the, the sort of formality of it um, is... Uh, is all is anyway it's very um it's very it's very strange ah carita says compare and contrast dracula's women and thistledown's dancers yeah yeah the man with the thistledown hair the gentleman excuse me with the thistledown hair in the film uh uh are you thinking of the film depiction of the dancers in particular um uh i assume so uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think I think that's neat. Anyway, okay, so here's the world of the vampire, right? And we, we, we've gotten this. So on the one hand, I can kind of see, all right, we're returning there, right? See how close this looks? Maybe the same set, maybe not the same set. But anyway, this is under Carfax Abbey. So we have Dracula here, and he's moving a little faster, and he's carrying Mina now because she was so darn slow, right? Um, 
Okay, so we're 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 coming back down. So the intrusion of uh, the irate Jonathan Harker, still in a really nifty hat, though. Um, anyway, so down he goes. Mina, Mina. That's all I can say. So him running around. Uh, the contrast between just their human voices echoing in the vaults down here. Okay, right? Oh. He found a stealthy hiding place. At, yeah, those wooden boxes just sitting out. You found them, yeah, okay. Oh, yep, there he is. Just lying there, perfectly helpless. No basilisk gaze, right? No uh, transfixing with the horror. No hypnotism, right? No hypnosis as he looks in, like he gets hypnotized when he looks in at the vampire women. Um, there's Dracula hanging out, perfectly helpless, just waiting. He's like, puts like a stake me sign on his chest there, right? Um, and it's so anticlimactic, right? I mean, again, it's... You know, returning to the same kind of scene at the end as at the beginning, it's 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 a nice kind of parallelism, but it's just, it's disappointing at the end. Um, yeah, Mark Ingram says he he does come across as a little bumbling at the end. He has no backup plan and no escape plan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's um, really disappointing. He's like it's almost it's almost as if he's he's helpless as soon as um, as soon as Van Helsing. Um, stares him down right as soon as Van Helsing resists him um, yeah Stoker's Dracula is way smarter Mick I totally agree um, so Dracula is helpless John Harker is clueless right just running around like a chicken with his head cut off yelling Mina 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 um, Renfield is groveling and then killed I don't know how strangled broken somehow apparently manually killed uh um and then we get okay we get the big finish we ready for the big finish there's a big finish find something heavy look there you go jonathan harker is contributing here john harker pardon me is contributing he found a heavy object and brought it over to Van Helsing to use as a mallet to drive the stake home. So there you go. I kind of like the fact that uh, um, Van Helsing takes a fragment of the coffin of Dracula himself, right? He breaks up the co the coffin lid. Though again, here's Dracula just lying there while he's over there with his back to him. I mean, did you notice this? Here's, here's Van Helsing over there, like, would you call that a vulnerable position? I'd call that a vulnerable position, right? Here's Dracula with this perfect opportunity. You know, he's he's lying there. He's totally and perfectly helpless. Uh, uh, Van, uh, Van Helsing doesn't have to pay a bit of attention to him. Right, um, I kind of like the fact that wood from his own uh, coffin box is used to to kill Dracula. Like that's kind of that's kind of poetic. It's kind of interesting. Um, okay, that's your stake. What are you gonna do with your stake? No, he's over there. Oh, you're gonna kill Mina? 
We had a discussion at the end of the last class as to whether or not that coffin is empty. Um, of course, they're ex- clearly expecting to find Mina, right? Even John Harker at this point, the skeptic, now believes, you now understands what's going on or, or, or seems to have accepted it. And he expects that Mina's in there, right? I mean, those kind of did look like his and hers coffins, didn't they? Uh, and so he's going to go, is she... Uh, you know, how is she, you know, he, he's, he's wondering if she's already like vampire, you know, in a vampire state in there. Um, interesting to me that when he gets the stake, the first thing Van Helsing does is go to the hers. There's Dracula lying right there, minding his own business. But Van Helsing takes the stake over to the other one as if he believes Mina's in there. And he, his first, his plan A is he's first he's going to stake Mina and then he's going to stake Dracula, which doesn't make a lick of sense because, of course, if he staked Dracula first, he could conceivably set her free if she's not, if she's only mostly undead, right? So, um, uh, uh, anyway, but he says she's not there. Does that mean, uh, because the discussion we're having is, is Lucy in there? Um, because we did get the blue for lady briefly in this film, uh, and nothing was ever done about the blue for lady. Um, uh, but I don't, I, I, myself, I don't really kind of, uh, I, don't, I really don't kind of buy that. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, I, I don't. And, and the reason I don't really buy that is that it seems Dracula was bringing her Mina here. I think these were his and hers coffins, and the other one was intended for Mina. So, I, I mean, maybe maybe they're going to double up, right? Maybe it's a double occupancy coffin. Right? Maybe Dracula likes to, to transport uh, his women in bulk. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can't totally rule that out. Didn't think of that. But uh, but probably not. I mean, so I think... I, when And he doesn't say... It's not her. He says she's not there. And I get the impression that it's empty, though we never do see the inside of it, right, to be quite sure about it. But she may be alive. Put down the heavy object and go run around and yell Mina again, Jonathan. That's pretty much what you're good for. Meanwhile, it's time climactically to kill the vampire. Now, the killing of him off screen, I don't you know, criticize them for that. I know that's how they did things back then. Again, they're not going to show the gore and the blood and the, the, I mean, think of the description that Bram Stoker gives with the, you know, the lips of bloody form and all that. We're not going to get that on screen in 1931. And I, I, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to hold that against them. So we hear the vague, quiet groans, uh, quiet, dignified groans, I would add, uh, of Bela Lugosi off screen. Uh, as he's being staked by Van Helsing. Um, but the whole business is so workmanlike and so anticlimactic. Um, I mean, they could have, like, gone out for lunch and come back and staked him afterwards, right? There's, like, no urgency uh, to this scene at all. Um, obviously, a, a huge difference from the staking of, of Dracula in the book. Notice it's in Mina's reaction that we are given, right? We're not shown the, the stake going through Dracula, but we get the stake uh, uh, sympathetically perceived by Mina, right? And this emphasizes to us just to make sure we're getting exactly what's happening here, right? As uh, Mina is suddenly convulsed by a, a nasty case of heartburn. Oh, need an acid, Jonathan. John, I mean... Oh, that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, she's being staked by proxy Arthur. That's precisely it. 
I love how bouncy he is. John, darling. Van Helsing kind of creepily watching them around a pillar. Calling. But I couldn't say anything. We thought he'd kill you, dear. The daylight stopped him. Oh, if you could have seen the look on his face. Oh, yeah. There's nothing more to fear, Miss Nina. Dracula is dead forever. No, 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 you must go. Why? But aren't you coming with us? Not yet. Uh, presently. Uh, come, John. That's the last line of the film. Not yet. Presently. Come, John. Not exactly tying things up there. Um, you must go? Why must she go? Oh, because being down there will infallibly wreck her or something? I don't understand. Um, uh, what's he going to do? Again, see, this is like part of the conspiracy theory that Lucy's in the coffin. He's like, you guys run along. I'm going to go stake your friend Lucy, and then I'll join you, right? I can see it, you know. I can. I. I I'm. 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 I think it's possible. Um, I. You know. I don't think it's inevitable. I, I don't think it's an inescapable reading of that moment. But you know. Okay. I can see that. And so then the final image we get. The two of them marching in step, hand in hand, arms around each other, up the stairs. As the sunlight descends, right, it's a very matrimonial moment. The end. Yeah, that's it. So we get this assertion of marriage, right? Of love, of their love at the end. This scene, ta-da. There it is, John Harker and Mina walking up the stairs together. Um, Joyce, what you were talking about before about how the staircase, right? Which is like the, the descent down into hell and the reascension uh, back up from hell, at least from hell to earth, if not if not to heaven. I like that, uh, and I think that, that that works well. Again, we don't we don't get that much warrant for that kind of a that kind of a, a, a of, of a spiritual uh, reading of it um, in the context of the film itself as not part of the vocabulary of this film, but. But but visually, I do like that. That certainly the descent and the ascent, the staircase is awesome, right? And uh, and uh, certainly it's hard to avoid those kinds of associations. Um, see, no, Arthur, I resist the Orpheus thing. I don't believe Orpheus. On the one hand, I mean, you could say he's like got his wife back, but the imp- for me, one of the like the the sine qua non of the Orpheus myth is that he can't look back. He's got to walk in front of her and he can't look back. And if he looks back, he loses her. Um, if you're ascending up from the underworld hand in hand with your wife like this, side by side with your wife, you're not Orpheus. Um, it's just, it's just, it's not. It's not. I mean, I'm not saying maybe they weren't thinking of it, but if they did, they screwed it up. That's not, that's not Orpheus. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it, I almost wish they had done that. I mean, it would be kind of cool, like to ha- sort of keep alive the doubt. Like, is Mina really okay? Is he actually going to lose her? Right? Um, you know, you could you could do that. You could go there. Um, and if they did, if they had had him leading her up, like it would have been kind of cool to have him going up the stairs and maybe them holding hands, him showing his hand behind, but him looking forward. Then, like, totally Orpheus thing, and I would have loved that. Um, but they didn't. They didn't do that. Um, I don't know. I I find. I find it hard in the end to 
know where I am at the end of this movie. So, I mean, we've got the confusion with Renfield. Um, we've got, like, the random unexplained Christian symbols, you know, the crucifixes, as I talked about before. We've got the ant- the, the, the really sad anticlimax of the end, you know, and the, the, the lack of urgency in the ending here. We then end with a, a, like, so the final image is John and Mina ascending. So, again, this kind of matrimonial thing. So it's like, it's a comedy, right? Because it ends with a wedding. I, I, I don't know. It, um, I have a really, I have a really hard time. Yeah, you're right, Tom. He is not the leader in their relationship. The whole Orpheus role would not fit on John Harker as he is depicted in this film, no question. Um, anyway, I, I actually enjoy this film a lot. I have fun watching it, uh, but when I think about it at the end of the day, it's, I mean, the first one, the Nosferatu, although it's more comical as it goes along, holds together much better. I find the story that they're telling kind of puzzling in some ways, and I certainly find it less interesting than I find the story in the book, but it is coherent. It does hold together, the story that they tell in Nosferatu. Um, The story that they tell here does not really hold together nearly as well, and I don't have any I don't come away with any really clear sense of like, what is this story about? What is this story interested in? Um, and it all kind of seems to, um, seems to, to, to kind of unravel in the final scenes with Renfield's character and the ending and Dracula looking like an idiot and all this stuff. So um, anyway, uh, this, uh, so in, in the end, uh, I, you know, although, again, although I like this film and Bela Lugosi is awesome, I, uh, I'm not a huge fan of what this, in the end, is, uh, is, is doing with the story. Yes, Mick, uh, next class we're doing The Horror of Dracula. Uh, that's going to be on Wednesday at the same schedule, so we'll be back to the, back to the normal schedule uh, this week. Well, I was on the normal schedule last week, just my recording didn't work out. So uh, uh, thanks for joining me, everybody. Thanks for uh, those of you who came, especially I know some of you attended this class twice. Uh, I appreciate your being here and joining with me uh, the uh, second time here. We're now, yes, going to be moving forward into the 50s, looking at uh, at, at the Christopher Lee Dracula uh, uh, version there. Um, so we're going to... Uh, so that's that's for this coming Wednesday, the horror of Dracula, uh, and then we'll move up forward uh, into, I think, the 90s, right? Um, anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys on Wednesday. Bye now. <laughs>